Hello, and welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I am your host, Jake Downs, and as we enter 2024, I want to wish you a very happy New Year's. I hope that you are healthy, I hope that you are well, and I wish you the best of prosperity in 2024. For those of you that are returning to the show, if you appreciate the content in this episode, I would love if you would share it with a colleague. And if you are new to this show, and it's your first time listening, I would appreciate it if you rate and or review this podcast on whatever platform you are receiving the podcast from. This episode is going to be a bit different than the typical take. Typically, I interview literacy scholars about their research and what it means for reading and writing instruction. But this episode is going to be a bit different. In this one, I want to share with you a resolution that I have for the year 2024. And I want to provide some thinking about why I think this resolution is important for me and uh, perhaps persuade you to consider adopting this resolution as well. But before we get rolling, I want to do a brief introduction since there are a lot of new listeners to the show. Hello, my name is Jake. I started this podcast in 2019 when I was a fourth grade teacher by day and PhD student at night. I finished my PhD in 2021 and then spent a few years as a district elementary literacy coordinator in my local school district. And this previous fall, fall of 2023, I began an assistant professorship in the Department of Teacher Education and Leadership at Utah State University. And here I split my time between conducting research on reading instruction and teaching courses. Outside of the reading world, I enjoy landscape photography. So if scenic photography of northern Utah sounds interesting to you, I'm on Instagram at Jake's Takes Photos. So Jake's with a period, takes with a period photos on Instagram. And I also enjoy time with my family, pickleball, and a good old-fashioned road trip. So I want to get to my resolution and provide some rationale for why I've decided that to be a resolution for me this year. And my resolution is to do a better job of thinking like a scientist. So I'm going to unpack a lot through this episode what I mean when I say think like a scientist. But up front, I want to provide the rationale for why I feel this is an important resolution for me to adopt this year. And my rationale is that we have an accumulated evidence base for what effective reading practice should entail. And that's gone by different terms over the years. The current term that seems to encapsulate that best is the term, the science of reading. The argument I want to present is that this evidence base will never be fully realized in practice unless we, as folks who care about literacy and we care about kids, adolescents, and adults being able to read and write, do a better job of thinking like scientists of reading. And by this, I mean teachers, school leaders, district leaders, state leaders, policymakers, curriculum writers, and of course, above all, reading researchers can look for ways to improve in the ways that they think and approach reading instruction. I think we all understand here that the stakes are big. I don't need to rehash that. What really matters is that we are getting literacy right for our students so we can do right by them as they progress through their education. I want to point out that the framework for this episode is borrowed from Adam Grant's book, Think Again. If you don't know about Adam Grant, he is someone that I really respect 
in how he thinks and the type of thinking he produces. Adam Grant is a professor of organizational psychology in the Wharton School of Business. He's a top-rated professor there. He's authored about a half dozen or so fantastic books. I first read him when I was an undergraduate. I read his first book, Give and Take, and that really left a big impression on me. Another book of his uh, called Originals I read when I was working on my master's degree. And then in this past year, 2023, Dr. Nell Thompson recommended this book to me. Dr. Nell Thompson uh, is, is a reading researcher. She runs the Big Sky Literacy Summit that happens in the fall in Montana. And she recommended this book to me called Think Again by Adam Grant. And when I listened to it, I was absolutely captivated by it. I bought myself a paper copy. And there are books that are good books. There are books that are interesting books. This is a book that I'm going to argue is important. And I think it's especially important for us as stakeholders in literacy and literacy instruction. It's an important book because it, the entire premise of the book is understanding the power of knowing what you don't know. And so last year when I was finishing up my time at the school district, I purchased the book for several of my colleagues there. Now that I am an aspiring reading researcher and I have PhD students that I'm working with, I, I'm purchasing it for the doc students of the, the committees that I'm chairing of theirs because I think it's really important to understanding why thinking like a scientist is so important. So the major premise of Adam Grant's book, Think Again, is that our thinking and thus our speaking often falls into one of three different categories. And we flow and weave seamlessly between these at different points for different reasons. When I first heard these, I, I recognized each of these, not only in myself, but in some of the dialogue around reading and reading instruction, be it on Twitter X, be it in in practitioner-oriented presentations, even in researcher-oriented presentations, I see these three modes in the discourse on reading instruction, and I think we can do better. So I want to highlight what they are and their limitations and why thinking like a scientist might be a better approach than each of these three. So the three categories that our thinking and speaking fall into are preacher, prosecutor, and politician. So when we're in preacher mode, our goal is to proselytize our views and deliver sermons that protect our ideals and are able to promote our beliefs. And we tend to fall into preacher mode when our ideals or our core values are being attacked or threatened. The second mode is prosecutor mode. And this is when we recognize the flaws in someone else's thinking. And so we marshal arguments and develop rhetoric that are going to prove the other person wrong. And the third mode is politician mode. And in this mode, we're trying to campaign to win over an audience or lobby for the approval of constituents or other folks that we're trying to persuade. And this involves a lot of we are right, the other people are wrong approach. The reason that these approaches to thinking can be a problem or the limitations that these approaches to thinking have is that even though they're quite natural for us, if we spend all of our time thinking in these modes, we don't have the opportunity to update our thinking. In other words, as Adam Grant puts it, we become blind to our blind spots. We begin to become ignorant of our arrogance. And in the book, he provides data that discusses how when we stick in prosecutor, preacher, or politician mode, 
we are less open to discussion, we are less open to reason, and we are less open to disagreement. And so they insulate us from updating our thinking, which over time can undermine our overall competence. And so Dr. Grant promotes the alternative, which is to think like a scientist. And Adam Grant explains it much better than I ever could. So I'm going to quote directly from him of an explanation of what it means to think like a scientist. This is from the Huberman Lab podcast from November 27th, 2023, and it is around the one hour, 54 minute mark. And this is again quoting Dr. Adam Grant. He says, when I say think like a scientist, I do not mean that you need to buy a microscope or invest in a telescope. What I mean is a good scientist has the humility to know what they don't know and the curiosity to constantly seek out new knowledge. There have been multiple experiments showing that when people are taught to think like scientists, their judgment improves and so did their decisions. And I think a lot of that stems from when you go into scientist mode, you realize that all of your opinions are just hypotheses waiting to be tested. All of your decisions are experiments. And so you're like, well, I'm not trying to prove that I'm right. I'm trying to find out if I might be wrong. And then if I find out that I am wrong, it's easier to pivot. And instead of being really invested in being right, I can try to get it right. And I think in some ways that's the meta message I'm trying to communicate to people with my work is assumptions are meant to be pressure tested. They're meant to be questioned and challenged. And if you're not open to rethinking your views, then you basically turn thinking into a religion. And I don't know about you, but I prefer to base my views on good data as opposed to blind faith. What sticks out to me the most from that quote by Dr. Grant is the idea of instead of being invested in being right, being invested in trying to get it right. And when we're staking our value in trying to get it right, that allows us to innovate and rethink and update our thinking over time. And I think that is a much better alternative to staking within preacher, prosecutor, or politician mode where it all becomes very self-validating and insulatory from innovative thinking. Again, Dr. Grant has an entire book on thinking like a scientist called Think Again. But what I've done for the remainder of the episode is I've cherry-picked three tools that I consider to be really essential for what it means to think like a scientist. And then what I've done after that is I have two vignettes one with Dr. Nell Duke and one with Dr. Holly Lane, of interviews they've done on other podcasts where I feel they are displaying really well what it means to think like a scientist. And my hope is that if we have some good models that we can mimic, that that will help us adopt and internalize these tools that scientists use. So the first essential tool of thinking like a scientist is confident humility. And this is a term that Dr. Grant explains much more in depth in the book. But what I'll say about it here is that confident humility is clarity in stating what we do know and humility or grounding in stating the limitations of that knowledge. So it's not only understanding where our knowledge begins and where it ends, but also being able to articulate that and state that when we are explaining the things that we know. The second tool of thinking like a scientist is to be willing to pressure test our assumptions, which means being willing to put thoughts and ideas to the test 
and then look at the results of that test to evaluate the validity of that assumption. And the third tool of thinking like a scientist is being willing to rethink our thinking, which means being willing to update or revise thinking when new data and or evidence become available. So again, those three are confident humility, pressure testing assumptions, and rethinking thinking. So now I want to provide a vignette of two reading researchers who really model these tools of a scientist really effectively in two separate podcast interviews they were on. So the first one I want to highlight is Dr. Nell Duke from her interview on The Literacy View, which was posted November 10th, 2023. And just to provide some background, Dr. Nell Duke was invited to the podcast to respond to a published article where her name and her research were invoked. I'm not going to take the time to unpack all the background behind that. Folks can listen to the episode to learn more details, and there's plenty more out there on the internet about it. But I do want to point out that in this particular situation, it would have been very easy for Dr. Duke to preach, to prosecute, or to politic in her response to that initial article. She could have taken the approach of, hey, this is what my research actually says, and then extolling all the virtues around it. She could have been, you know, here's all the reasons why the authors who wrote this article were wrong and just going a line item, boom, 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 boom. Or she could have taken more of a political approach and just dismissed the article outright and then trying to rally the listeners around science of reading or around some specific banner. And, uh, and I'm not sure if she had the inclination to do any of this or, or not, but I know what she did do, and it's very clear as you listen to her what she did in response, instead of preaching, prosecuting, or politicking in her response to this article, she talked like a scientist. And the end result that you get from that episode is it's, incre it's an incredibly informative episode, but you also see very clearly what it means to think like a scientist. So I want to first talk about how Dr. Duke displayed confident humility in her interview on the Literacy View. My example happens when she's talking about the research around decodables, and that conversation starts around the 55-minute mark. And specifically at 55.32, she says the following. Decodables are another area with so many practical questions. You know, as somebody who spends a lot of time in schools, there's really not as much research as you wish there were around decodables. So there have been studies of decodables, not as much research as we'd like. What I would say, based on the weight of the evidence we have so far, is that when we use texts with children that have a higher percentage of words that they're going to be able to decode based on what they've been taught, it just tends to lead them to be more inclined to use letters and sounds to decode words. And that's really powerful. And then she goes on over the next couple of minutes to describe how she's implemented that in her own work using multiple criteria such as repetition, using concrete words, uh, using a high percentage of words that are decodable based on what students have been taught, and even incorporating multiple genres into decodables that she's, she's developed. I feel the way that she really displays confident humility in this situation is she's not over-speaking or over-generalizing what the research on decodables says. That she's able to say, well, this is what we know. This is what we feel pretty certain that the evidence base is indicating around decodables. Here's areas that I think are less gray or that we don't know quite as much about. And here's the approach I've taken to implement that data. And so for the first criterion of confident humility, 
I give Nell Duke an A plus on that. And there's there's several other examples in that episode that I could point out, but I thought that one was a, was a good example. The second tool of thinking like a scientist is to pressure test assumptions. And Dr. Duke does a great job of this around the 51-minute mark to describe how she pressure tested an assumption of her own recently. So in response to this article that was written that invoked her name in research, she wanted to write a response that, that captured some of her thinking with organization and structure in an article that people could freely access. Now, Nell Duke has a very large audience. She could have hammered out her thoughts on the computer. She could have hit send, hit share, hit tweet, you name it. And her response could have been out there. And, and that response could have been preaching, prosecuting, politicking, all of the above. And that would have been a very quick and easy approach to do it. Uh, but she didn't do that. She modeled what it's like to think like a scientist. And so instead of just hammering out her thoughts and then pushing it out into the world, she decided that she wanted feedback on her thoughts. She wanted to pressure test the assumptions that she wrote about in, in this response article. And so she sent it for feedback, and, and not just from her doc students or her closest collaborators, the people that think the most like her, she sent the feedback, she sent her article out for feedback to senior folks in the reading research field that represent a broad diversity of expertise. Folks like Linnea Airy, Barbara Foreman, Heidi Ann Mesmer, P. David Pearson, Tim Rosinski, Tim Shanahan, Tanya Wright, and allowed them to provide feedback on her article so she could revise the article. So then in the end, what folks got was a better product rather than a fast product. And I think this is a great example of focusing on getting it right rather than just focusing on being right. And I'm confident that because Dr. Duke was willing to pressure test her assumptions in this article that the end result was better. And it's a good example for us of what it means to think like a scientist. The third tool that Dr. Nell Duke uses in her interview on the Literacy View podcast is she models that it's okay to update her thinking as new evidence presents. And she actually says this, I counted at least three times during this hour and a half long interview that she says that I updated my thinking or that's something we all should be doing is we should update our thinking. She's tr she, she does a good job of saying that's not a weakness, it's actually a strength. That updating thinking as new evidence presents is actually something that is a sign of a good scientist not a poor scientist. And she provides an, a, a concrete example of that from her own thinking at the around the one hour, eight minute mark, approximately 49 seconds. And she says the following. She says, one of the things that should be true of researchers is they should change their mind over time if new evidence comes to pass. And then the example that she provides is she talks about uh, morphology. And she says, you know, I used to really think that morphology was something reserved more for the upper grades. But there's been recent data that's been persuading me to think more aligned that morphology has a role in preschool and kindergarten in much younger students. And so that's a great example for me that if Dr. Nell Duke can update her thinking as new evidence presents itself, that for me, as I'm trying to work on thinking like a scientist this year, that I can do better at that as well. So overall, uh, from this episode, it, you, you, you would do well to go and listen to it on the Literacy View, but a big kudos to Dr. Nell Duke. 
when you think about reading researchers that are A, well-known and regarded among reading researchers, and B, also well-known and well-regarded among practitioners, that's a pretty short list. But I can almost promise you that, that Nell Duke would be near the top of almost everyone's list. And the reason for that is on full display in this interview, because she does a great job of doing what a good scientist should do, in that she displays confident humility, she models what it means to pressure test assumptions, and she shows us that we can update our thinking as new evidence presents. And I think that's something that's very palatable to reading researchers, but is also very palatable to practitioners as, as well. So that was my vignette number one. Vignette number two of a reading researcher who displays what it's like to use the tools of thinking like a scientist is Dr. Holly Lane. And this is from episode 159 of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast that was released on August 18th, 2023. And just a bit of background on this episode. This episode was based off of a webinar that uh, Dr. Lane had done previously that was along the lines of, is it science of reading or is it snake oil? Or in other words, how to really think through whether something is evidence-based. And there's so many gems throughout that whole episode of, of where Dr. Lane is displaying the tools of thinking like a scientist. But again, I've just cherry-picked three short examples that explain where she has confident humility, pressure-testing assumptions, and updating thinking. So tool of a scientist number one, confident humility. This happens around the six-minute and 30-second mark. And what Dr. Lane is doing at this point in the podcasting is She's discussing the reliability of various forms of evidence. So everything uh, like anecdotal evidence, case study, correlational, quasi-experimental, uh, randomized control trial, systematic review, meta-analysis. She kind of walks through each of those and, and says, this is what types of things this approach can generate, but here's the limitations as well. And I, I want to pick specifically in there what she talks about with a randomized control trial. And so when she's talking about a randomized control trial, you know, she states very plainly that the rigor of the design of a randomized control trial produces much more reliable results. But she points out that there are trade-offs, trade-offs such as folks have to consent to participate in a randomized control trial. But that means that if it's randomized, that they have a 50-50 chance of actually not receiving the treatment in a randomized control trial. She also explains that randomized control trials are typically much more expensive to do than something like a quasi-experimental design or a correlational or even a case study. And so that's why we tend to see less of them is there's just a lot more to implementing an RCT. And because there's a lot more to implement, there's a lot more expense that comes with it. Now, the reason why I cherry-picked this example is because I feel that she could have just as easily Rather than explaining the trade-offs of an RCT, she could have gone into preacher mode and just preached the value of an RCT or gone into a prosecutor mode and then prosecuted the large majority of curriculum that do not undergo an RCT to evaluate instructional effectiveness. She could have politicked listeners to, to rally believers around UFLY, which is the a phonics curriculum that she helped develop. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more in a minute, but she could have rallied the listeners around UFLY of, you know, this is something that we did to make sure that we had instructional integrity. Any one of those she could have used, but, but she didn't. She just very simply explained, here's what an RCT is. Here's why it's valuable. 
And here are some barriers to why we don't see more randomized controlled trials and why perhaps we don't see more curriculum that undergo an RCT as part of their development process. So with confident humility there, I'm just going to say check. Okay, tool of a scientist number two that Dr. Lane illustrates really well in her interview on the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast, and that is pressure testing assumptions. And it begins around the 14-minute mark. And what Dr. Lane is doing is she's describing the development of the phonics curriculum that, that she's helped develop called, called UFLY. And, and she does just such a good job of showing what it means to pressure test an assumption. So the way she starts is she, she starts by saying, well, you know, in our undergraduate program, we were training our undergraduate students to write phonics lesson plans from scratch. And over time, we had honed that so that these undergraduate students did really, really well with writing phonic lesson plans from scratch. And so then they started working with some in-service teachers during like summer PD uh, type situations. And these are teachers that probably had a different approach in their teacher preparation program. And their key assumption was that, well, if, if we just deliver the same training to these in-service teachers as we do to these pre-service teachers, then they'll be able to take, with, take it and run with it the same way our undergraduates did. And things did not go as expected. That, that assumption did not pan out the way that Holly Lane and her research team thought that it would. She states in the episode that some teachers, a limited few, were able to take it and run with it, but many were frustrated and there was a chunk that just tapped out and weren't even willing to really engage with it. And so it, it didn't work out with in-service teachers the same way that it did with the pre-service teachers. And I want to point out that at this point, this is the point where it would have been very easy for Holly Lane and her research team to go into preacher, prosecutor, or politician mode, where they could have preached and said, this is the way you have to be doing it. Our undergraduate students can do it. Uh, and, and being able to develop the lesson plan from scratch is, is the right way to go. They could have gone into prosecutor mode and either prosecuted what was happening in classrooms or prosecute the teachers for not being committed enough or they're, they're not engaged enough to be willing to invest in their students to write lesson plans from scratch. That's definitely an approach that they could have taken. They also could have gone into politician mode and said, well, look at all of these other teachers, that undergraduate teachers that we've trained that, that can do it. Why can't you do it? Um, or, or just rallied you know, those that were doing it and saying, wow, you know, you guys are doing so great. I wish your colleagues, you know, could do it to the same level, that sort of thing. But from the vignette that Dr. Lane is providing in the episode, they didn't do any of that. It was a, well, back to the drawing board type experience where things did not go as planned. The pressure test of their assumption or an hypothesis did not go as well as expected. So rather than going into one of those modes to justify why it didn't work, they just redesigned. They updated their thinking and designed another iteration. And in this iteration, and this might have been with a different group of teachers, but the research team actually wrote the lessons and provided them to the teachers. And so then rather than spending the, the PD time to teach the teachers how to write an instructional plan, it was a, their time was able to be spent more on, here's how to deliver these lessons effectively, and here, here is why the, the design of these lessons is so, uh, is so important. And so lo and behold, that approach was able to gain traction because the teachers were receiving the instruction. They were able to receive more support with 
implementation rather than just writing from scratch. And this became a virtuous cycle in the sense that because teachers had buy-in, they were also able to provide the research team with feedback so that the research team could hone these lessons to a greater degree. So they were able to sort of road test while they were road testing their assumptions, which I think is a really great example of why pressure testing assumptions is so important. Because then you get to see how it operates in the real world. And then you can have iterations of improvement that allow for that product to be designed and honed over time. And the result from that is the UFly Phonics curriculum. And, and even with that, um, you know, she explains some of the research they've been doing around UFly, and she's very clear to acknowledge the limitations of that research and, and what it does and what it doesn't do. So again, she very easily preached prosecutor politic around the result of this pressure testing of the UFly curriculum, but she doesn't. She talks like a reading scientist, and that allows listeners to be able to update their own thinking and make their own conclusions. So in pressure testing assumptions, check A+. Dr. Lane does a great job of that throughout the entire episode, but especially when, when she's explaining the development of UFLY. So the third tool of thinking like a scientist that Holly Lane models in this episode is updating thinking as new evidence presents. And this one has a slight twist that I'll get to in a minute. But what the conversation centers around, and, and this is about at the 32-minute mark, is there was a graphic on Twitter that someone had shared, and it was making the rounds, and it was about the number of repetitions required for orthographic mapping. And when she starts talking about this in the episode, it caught my attention because I knew the exact graphic they were talking about. I had seen it on Twitter. I'd seen it in a few presentations and trainings, and even the specific book that it came from was one that I had in my shelf in my office. So I knew exactly what they were talking about. And um, so right out of the gate, when they start talking about this image, I, I had a vested interest in saying, I want to hear Holly Lane's take on it. So what Holly Lane said the red flag for her around this image was because the, the numbers reported in this graphic were so clean, you know, that gifted and talented learners needed this many repetitions, regular students needed this many, dyslexic students needed this many. And she says that, you know, as a reading researcher, I, I was really struggling to think of how I would conduct a study that could ever produce such clean numbers. And so the fact that the numbers there, that it just looked too polished, that that was the red flag for Dr. Lane. And so what Dr. Lane does is she inquires. She asks the person on Twitter saying, well, where did you find this, this image? And that person referred her to the book. And so she goes to the book and finds, wow, these are from reputable authors. And then she goes to the study that's cited in the book that's for the graphic. And in that study, she doesn't really find anything remotely close to what the numbers in the graphic are reporting. And, and I'll add, that's something I didn't do. I, I saw the graphic and I questioned it and I thought, yeah, something doesn't quite look right there. But then I didn't have the fortitude as a aspiring reading researcher to follow the breadcrumbs to the source. But Dr. Lane did, and, and so she's able to confidently say, you know what, I've looked at that, and even though that it was in a book that came from some reputable authors, I don't think that that graphic itself is of the strongest evidence. And in that episode, she could have preached, prosecuted, or politicked about this. She could have said, well, yes, students need repetition, just blindly accepting of it. 
she could have prosecuted and said, you know, see, here is the smoking gun evidence that folks who disagree with repetition or with phonics instruction are wrong. But, but she didn't. She followed the breadcrumbs, reviewed the evidence, and then ended up rejecting the claim of that specific graphic and then walked us through her reasoning and evidence why. And so even though tool number three is updating thinking as new evidence presents, this is a case of not updating thinking when new evidence didn't pan out, when it wasn't actually evidence, but it was something got lost in translation. And, and I don't want to claim malice on the part of whoever created the graphic, but, but that is something that's very common is this instructional drift that as things happen from research to instruction, there's all these junctures along the way where things can sort of get lost in translation. And so this is a good job of when to not update your thinking. I hope the conversation so far and the vignettes I've provided have helped you get a greater understanding of what it means to think like a scientist, of what confident humility looks like, what pressure testing assumptions looks like, what rethinking thinking looks like, but also what preacher mode, politician mode, and prosecutor mode can look like and how to avoid those. And something that Adam Grant spends a little bit of time about in the book is saying that thinking like a scientist is so important for us, but it isn't the only mode that is beneficial. That sometimes it is important to talk like a, a preacher, a prosecutor, or a politician. So for example, if you're a curriculum developer trying to sell a product, it's probably going to be beneficial for you to adopt a preacher marketing strategy so that you can sell product and stay in business. Or let's say that you are a state leader. If you're a state leader, you may need to adopt the approach of a politician to rally LEAs and districts to various state initiatives. If you are a reading researcher, you may need to adopt a little bit of a prosecutor approach to try and dispel some of the reading snake oil that is peddled around and just seems to be circulating. But Adam Grant's book, Think Again, has convinced me personally that even if there are times when prosecutor, preacher, politician mode are effective, that I could be spending much more of my time in thinking like a scientist and using the tools of a scientist, and then that will help me deploy those other approaches more strategically rather than just ad hoc. And so I would invite you to consider which modes of thinking do you find yourself in? Do you find yourself in preacher mode a lot? Do you find yourself in prosecutor mode a lot? Do you find yourself in politician mode a lot? And if so, do you think that adopting the tools of thinking like a scientist would benefit you? Things like confident humility, things like pressure testing your assumptions, things like rethinking your thinking. Do you think those would benefit you? And if so, how might you use a more scientific approach in your thought? And so even though I've discussed this as, you know, my resolution and, and end of 2024, I hope to follow up with you all with how it's gone throughout this year. I do want to invite you to think about, would this be a resolution that you in your literacy life would be willing to adopt as well in order to benefit all of us, the field as a whole, practitioners, and most especially our students? So if you're someone that is interested in thinking like a scientist, uh, I just have a couple ideas of what I've brainstormed of what it might look like for different stakeholders in literacy. So if you're a teacher, I think one way you can think like a scientist is to monitor your students' response to instruction and then try to adapt 
your instruction appropriately, or in other words, undergoing constant revision based on the data that you are receiving. If you are a school or district leader and you want to think more like a scientist, can you take your initiative, your implementation plan, your pet project, can you road test it on a smaller scale and then work on revising and honing that project before bringing it to scale overall? In other words, can you be invested in getting it right rather than being right? And it's likely going to take more time to road test and revise. But I think in the end, what you'll get is a product that is more roadworthy and that will have greater resilience and longevity over time. If you're a state leader, a large portion of your job is probably compliance. So enforcing state policy, state code, or state board rule. But can you communicate the nuance of research to your literacy stakeholders, LEAs and districts around the state, or to your board members, or to legislators that you work with? Can you communicate more of the nuance around research so that as a state, folks can focus on getting it right rather than being right? If you're a curriculum developer, can you design your curriculum in a way that it can be readily updated over time? Or is your curriculum designed to be a one and done? Is it so much of an overhaul to update curriculum that it's not worth it to you? So rather than seeking for your curriculum to be a one and done, can you have it be designed in a way that affords for updates over time as more research becomes available? And I'd also add as a curriculum developer, can you conduct research on your curriculum? But not only that, can you conduct your research in a way that seeks to evaluate its performance rather than validate its performance? And there's a fine nuance there, but I think that nuance really matters. Are you doing research around your curriculum to see what works about it and how it's working? Or are you just conducting a, a, an implementation study to check a box so that you can write a white paper to show folks who are looking to buy your curriculum that see we've done an implementation study and here's what we found. So seek to evaluate performance rather than validate performance. And last, if you are a reading researcher, are you willing to read wide? Are you willing to read not only in your specific domain area, your specific area of expertise, but are you willing to read in other folks' expertise, to have a wide and broad understanding of the field, to grapple with the challenges that face not only the reading research field, but also the implementation pragmatic boots on the ground reading instruction for students. Do you view your research as opportunities to pressure test your hypothesis or to rubber stamp your hypothesis? I'm excited to begin my year of really working on thinking like a scientist. And if you are someone who cares about literacy instruction, I would say please find a copy of Adam Grant's Think Again and evaluate what thinking practices of yours might need an update. And my, my hypothesis right now, my assumption that needs to be pressure tested is that no matter where you are at as a literacy stakeholder, teacher, school-level leader, district-level leader, state-level leader, curriculum developer, reading researcher, consultant, wherever you are at in the reading world, I think that as a whole, we would be better off if more folks were spending more of their time using the tools of a scientist to approach how we think about reading and reading instruction.
that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for your time. My hope is that Teaching Literacy Podcast is a place where you can see thinking like a scientist in action, both from me and from my guests. If you have listened to an episode, shared an episode, reviewed an episode, or done anything else for Teaching Literacy Podcasts, thank you. I am grateful. And I would also add that I'm incredibly optimistic right now about the future of reading instruction. I know things can feel contentious if you get on Twitter or if you go to certain presentations or sometimes it can feel like there's a lot of argument that's happening. But the reason I'm incredibly optimistic right now is because everybody is talking about reading instruction. Everyone is talking about what students need and how much of it they need. The minutes of instruction is what we're talking about right now. And I think that's something that has so much opportunity both to elevate our discussion but also to elevate our research uh, field going forward as well. So wherever you are at as a literacy stakeholder, thank you and keep doing the good work that you do. This is Jake with the Teaching Literacy Podcast. And until next time, let's go and teach reading and writing just a little bit better. (laughs) 